welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Despite the countless horror films and franchises I've watched, there are some glaring omissions from my watch list. So in an effort to rectify my more egregious oversights, I'm going to begin monthly reviews of horror series I've never watched in their entirety. And after polling on the Daily Horror Habit Twitter page, at Daily Horror Pod, the people have chosen my first series review will be Final Destination. I only actually ever saw the original for the first time a few months ago, and was more than happy to revisit it before diving into the rest of the franchise. James Wong's 2000 supernatural slasher Final Destination is currently streaming on Netflix until June 1st. Centering around Alex, played by Devin Sawa, who prevents his friends from dying in a plane crash after having a terrifying vision, but in preventing the accident, death is still determined to hunt them down one by one. For a film that is essentially a slasher, Final Destination's design is ingenious in that it's built in many ways as an anti-slasher film. Director James Wong stated they didn't want to make just another slasher with a mass protagonist, so the creative team made the film's world at large the antagonist, in that death uses environments to kill characters rather than a literal depiction of death. This is a really ingenious approach as it allows the tension to remain throughout as the viewer won't see kills coming and will have to guess how characters will be maimed or killed next. This keeps them on the edge of their seat throughout in a way that a lot of horror movies simply can't as they lose steam working up to their conclusion. It would have been pretty hokey and pretty tired if we saw the Grim Reaper literally strolling around in the backgrounds of scenes in a way that the film set out to avoid doing something like that and to present these horrible and elaborate kills in a way that was very unconventional. And I think that's what has allowed Final Destination to remain relevant and to remain as effective as it did 20 years ago today. What separates the film immediately is the creative fun it has with foreshadowing. I mean, the entire opening segment is all about impressing upon Alex that things aren't right. He starts to see kind of the matrix, as it were, where he's noticing all these coincidences, all these things that would be considered like jinxing somebody. Like in the very beginning, his packing for his trip to France, and he gives his mom this brief speech about how she can't take an old tag off of his suitcase because it's considered bad luck. And of course, the first thing she does is she rips it off, which is the first instance of, hey, I just jinxed you, basically. And then we see numerous examples when he's wandering through the airport to him boarding the plane. He's stopped by some hippie in the lobby of the airport, and the guy hands him a flyer that basically says, like, death is not the end, which that's, again, shouldn't be talking about death before boarding a plane. There's at one point where he's crossing from the runway to the plane, and when he's crossing, he looks down and he sees a baggage cart. And on the cart, it says 666, which is obviously the number of the devil. You literally have a character whose last name is Hitchcock, who's played by Sean William Scott. His name's Billy Hitchcock. Like Hitchcock, obviously, is a homage to Alfred Hitchcock, one of the masters of horror from back in the day. And there's lots of these little moments that I really, really love because they're presented in a way that is very blatant, but it never feels slapsticky or kind of goofy in a way that I don't think a lot of films would have the restraint to do. Like, it never feels like you're watching one of the scary movie spoofs. It's very tongue-in-cheek in that they're very overt, these warning signs about Alex being in danger and him, him sensing that, hey, something doesn't feel right. I feel this sense of danger that's looming, and I'm seeing more examples of it. But it never becomes comical. It always kind of becomes tongue-in-cheek, but it very much is fun and it feels like a very self-aware and genuine love for the horror genre. And my personal favorite kind of warning sign that I only recently just learned about in doing research is, is that there's a recurring gag in Final Destination where John Denver music plays. 
over and over, like in multiple scenes throughout the film. And I had just learned that John Denver tragically passed away in a plane crash, which which leads into the big opening event that kind of kickstarts the film and makes Alex and his friends who survive become aware that death is hunting them. Final Destination being a 2000 movie kind of went into it with some preconceived notions that A, it would have terrible CGI and B, it would be very campy and very similar to a lot of the tropes of 90s horror that I'm not necessarily always a huge fan of. And I think within the first 15, 20 minutes of the film, when we have the big plane crash scene, it kind of dispels that false notion that this movie is going to kind of be just like the same campy horror films that we were used to for the last decade. So Alex, once he's boarded the plane with his friends, he has this vision of the plane crashing and exploding. And this sequence literally floored me. And it's a 20-year-old film. I only, I, like I said in the beginning, I saw this about three months ago for the first time and I had the same reaction on a rewatch recently that I did when I watched it a couple of months ago in that the opening crash sequence is stellar. It's phenomenal. I can't get over how strong the CGI is in showing and depicting the plane crashing and exploding and you would assume that it would be very CGI heavy and blatantly so. And while there might've been some CGI there, it all looks like it's very practical from the makeup to the cabin being ripped apart to the fires that are exploding and being set within the cabin as different compartments start to explode and decompress and pressurize and whatnot. And it's just a very disturbing and it's a portrayed as being very realistic in a way that I think had there been a ton of like quick cuts and lots of CGI, it would have came across as very hokey and something that was a blatant example of practicality of the 90s effects and transitioning to this new age of CGI in a way that would be very revealing that they had not perfected CGI at that point. I could not believe that that was not the instance with the plane crash sequence or the plane crash uh, vision that he has. It's a very rare instance of a very chaotic scene in that we're shown the cabin and things are being ripped apart. There's explosions and whatnot. People are getting sucked out of the side of the plane. It could not be more chaotic, but it never feels nauseating. And I was reading that this is due to them filming the sequence with some type of special gimbal that would maintain, it acted as a, uh, a shock absorber basically for the camera. So the camera never turns into very like shaky cam, which is like a dreaded word in horror that not a lot of people are a fan of, especially in a lot of like found footage movies. But this gimbal allowed them to get very clean and precise shots that never let the viewer become very confused as to what's happening. You never lose track of what's happening in all of this chaos and explosions and blood and fire and whatnot. And that was something that I was really, really impressed upon that has aged really, really well. And uh, this special gimbal was funny. I read an anecdote where they actually sold the gimbal after the filming had uh, had wrapped on Final Destination. Then when they went back for, to film the sequel, Final Destination 5, they needed that gimbal again and they bought it from a, they found a production company that had one and it was the same exact one that they had used on the original film. So I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. And so once Alex has this vision and we have this fantastic sequence of the plane basically exploding in midair, he wakes up from the vision and he has a meltdown on the plane where he's talking, he's shouting everybody, the plane's going to explode, shouting all of these things that you could only shout on a plane in a pre 9-11 world. Whereas if you said anything of the sort like that post Final Destination, Obviously, they would ground the flight. It's funny, this film would have been very unbelievable, I feel like, had it come out post 9-11 in that there's so many instances in the beginning of the film where you can't 
fight in an, you can't shout things like that in an airport. You can't fight in an airport. Obviously, they would have grounded all the flights and there would be no basis for the film. Anyways, once he gets off the plane and he's fighting with some of the people with uh, Carter, who is like the the hardo jock essentially, and I'll get into him in a moment. Who's one of my uh, one of my nitpicks of the film? But while they're fighting in the lobby, a, a teacher gets off the plane, and a couple other students get off the plane because he's freaked them out so much. His best friend Todd wants to get off the plane to check on him, and then the plane takes off. They can't get back on. And then when the plane does take off and explodes in midair, their world basically gets turned upside down in that some of their classmates get killed and people start looking at Alex differently as not, he's not the savior of these people, even though he is, he's not viewed that way. He's viewed as somebody that's responsible for the accident. He's viewed as a freak, as a psychic, essentially, who was able to predict this and people are scared of him. They're angry at him. Kind of these, this idea that why didn't you stop it? Were you involved in this kind of thing? And the narrative is really based around that in that, Alex is trying to discover the truth behind what is happening. Meanwhile, he's being hunted by essentially the FBI who believes that he's behind it. And that's one of the elements of this film that I don't think has aged very well. And I'll get into a couple more kind of lack of a better word, sort of absurdities of the narrative for being an early 2000s teen slasher movie. The FBI kind of trying to investigate this teenager and assuming that he's behind all of these killings is not very fleshed out. Well, I don't think especially like the two agents that are pursuing him, I don't think are particularly well-developed. And the film spends the rest of the time of him trying to dodge them while trying to save everybody else. And he gets these visions periodically of people that are in danger, that death is approaching them, essentially, or targeting them to be killed next. But uh, some of the things that also haven't aged very well, Carter's character, who is the jock, essentially. I was not a fan of his character just because his character is so over the top in being like, the testosterone hardo, basically, where he's super angry all the time, even though Alex essentially had saved his life. You should be basically like singing his praises and yet he's super aggressive all the time. He's saying stuff like, I'm never going to die and all these kind of like just over the top things that his character doesn't sell very well. He kind of is just super angry constantly throughout the whole movie and that never changes um, and it gets pretty tiresome i think when start talking about more of the deaths and the intricacies of those deaths his death is my favorite by far not really but he's a character that you basically build up this resentment towards and just and rightfully so throughout the film so that way by the end of the film you have this satis really satisfying and kind of hilarious tongue-in-cheek moment there's stifler who i can never see sean william scott as anything other than stifler uh, sorry, those American Pie movies kind of solidified him as that. His character is the comedic relief, essentially. And honestly, I could take or leave his character. It's not it's not like overly offensive or anything like that. Offensive in the sense that it feels out of place or it feels forced. It's just not very inspired, most of the humor. I think his character, an instance that kind of reflects like the very like early 2000s kind of goofy writing in a sense of dialogue was he's talking to Alex and he's like, oh, I had a uh, I had a driving lesson this weekend and my driving instructor told me that you're going to die at a very young age. And it's just like, okay, like who would ever say that to somebody and then pass them for a driving exam? So like little moments like that. And then there is a lot, especially in the second half of the film, there's a lot of kind of like little melodrama moments, especially between Alex Clear Rivers, who's played by Allie Larder. She's introduced as being somewhat interesting in that she feels the connection or the she has the same visions that Alex has. Like she can feel sort of. It's not really explained that well. She just gets a feeling that coincides with when he is able to have a vision. So it's almost as if it's hinted that she has an ability similar to him 
which is an interesting premise, but it's not explored in Final Destination 1 all that much. It's more about her relationship with Alex. And there's kind of like a little romance indication between the two of them, but it never really evolves into anything. Not that I necessarily think the film needed that. It's just they a majority of their scenes is kind of like this intimacy that never is over the top uh, flirting. But at the same time, like there's a closeness between them that doesn't really go anywhere in a lot of ways. And then she also has a piece of dialogue, which just kind of shows how out of touch some of the writing is in terms of like the mood and the tone where Alex and all of them essentially have PTSD from their classmates and friends being killed. And yet she says things like, so let's go see him, referencing that she wants to take Alex to go see the body of his friend who just the police think committed suicide, Todd. And she says, oh, let's just let's go see him in the morgue. And it's like, that's kind of a fucked up thing to say with the straight face to somebody whose best friend has just died. That being said, I think Sawa, who plays Alex, his performance is great. Even on a rewatch, a pretty recent rewatch, uh, seeing his character kind of grapple with the survivor's guilt makes him very likable and it's a character that you feel for and you can easily root for. And while only the other the only other character that's not really likable is Carter, the rest of them for the most part are kind of just like running the pantheon of teen archetypes, which is fine. They're perfectly serviceable, but Alex is definitely the character that you're rooting for and it's easy to because he's so likable and you feel for him as he's going through this unpackaging this uh, supernatural trauma. And now the one element of uh, Final Destination that you can't not talk about because it's the highlight are the kills. And the kills, again, are some of the most creative I've seen. And it really complements this idea that Final Destination is crafted with being an anti-slasher response to like 90 slashers uh, and even 80 slashers in a way that's supernatural but doesn't necessarily abide by a lot of the kind of tropes that we saw over the last two decades. After the plane crash, we have Todd's bathroom death, Todd being Alex's best friend. And it's really interesting because they weaponize the environment early on in the scene. Todd's in the bathroom, he's using the toilet, he's gonna go shave, he's gonna go trim his nose hairs. And along the way, we're given little breadcrumbs as to what's happening in the environment. So when he sits on the toilet, a pipe starts leaking water and the puddle grows and grows and grows. And then they start kind of doing fake outs essentially for the audience. How is he going to die? How is this water going to make him die? Is he going to slip in the water and hit his head? And then we start to see he takes out a razor and he's going to shave and he nicks himself. And you're wondering, oh shit, is he going to slip and cut his throat with the razor and from slipping on the water? Is he going to, when he grabs the uh, boom box and plugs it in, is this going to short circuit or something and electrocute him. And you start to really try to pick apart the environment in a way that I don't think you nor you do at normal slashers. Obviously, you're looking for the masked guy standing in the corner as he fades in from darkness, kind of like that classic Halloween shot where Michael Myers is standing in the dark doorway and then his mask starts to fade in a little bit slowly. And then you see he's standing right behind Jamie Lee Curtis. With this, it's more about, it's almost like picking apart the pieces of a uh, a puzzle. It's like, oh, this piece is going to connect to here, this is going to connect to that, and this is going to result in the death. You start to make hypotheses about how characters are going to die, and picking up on these small pieces, it becomes almost like a game in a lot of ways. And there are some very smart ways that they do fake out the audience, like hinting that, oh, they're going to die by this, oh no, they're not, they're this and that. And by doing that, it makes the scenes a lot more tense and unnerving than you might anticipate. And even again, like, in watching it again so recently from the first time I watched it, was obviously aware of how the deaths are going to occur and how scenes are going to unfold. 
And yet at the same time, there's this tension that you really don't know essentially the first time you watch it. You don't know how it's gonna unfold. And even once on a rewatch when you do, you can't really guess based on the early indication. It's kind of like a uh, roller coaster going up a ramp, going and building and building and building. And then when you get to the very top, it all falls apart in a shocking fashion that you really couldn't guess from the very beginning. The kills in this film are paced incredibly well. Given the time that's dedicated to crafting the first kill where Todd ends up slipping on the water and getting the clothesline tied around his neck and he basically hung in the bathroom essentially. Going from that to another kill later in the film, not as elaborate in its setup and its construction, it's more of a shocking moment because the kill literally comes out of nowhere and that would be Carter's girlfriend is killed when she's crossing the street. She's having a conversation and she's telling characters, oh, I'm sick of all of you, forget you, uh, you could drop dead for all I care. And as she's crossing the street, she turns into a bus that's coming by and the bus hits her and the blood spewed all over the, the characters that are standing on the sidewalk talking to her. And pacing the film with these elaborate kills like Todd's death and then sudden shocking, very bloody deaths, like Carter's girlfriend getting hit by the bus that come out of nowhere is a really great use of the pacing and keeping the tension in a way that you really don't know when kills are going to come next. Because in the elaborate layout of Todd's kill, you might be able to start to guess when those are going to occur later in the film. Like especially when the surviving teacher, Miss Luton's death, is that this is a character who's in an open environment by herself, very secluded, and you start to pick up on certain cues of oh, danger is here, death is here. And with the Carter's girlfriend kill being in between those scenes, it's really great because it keeps the audience on the edge of their seat and that death could literally come at any time. And I think that that's really important in not making a lot of predictable moments because even though with Miss Luton's kill, much like Todd's kill, you can start to pick up on cues that something is gonna happen, even if you don't know what. And by spacing those out, they don't really outstay their welcome in a way or they don't become overly predictable. Now, part of that is because of the intricacies of the ways in which they're gonna die and all of the numerous really clever fake outs for the audience. It really helps the viewer to, to guess. They don't know, you don't know when death is gonna come and that's kind of tapping into the main idea of death and the environment itself, like the world of Final Destination being weaponized in a really interesting and unique way. Now, and what's probably my favorite top two kills of the entire film is the teacher who dies, Miss Luton. Because again, it's much like Todd's in that it's this very elaborate setup. It's almost like domino pieces falling down in that you start to pick up on little things that are indicators of what could happen here, what's gonna set off a chain of events. And the fake outs are so well done that you really can't get, it's impossible to guess. But you start to deconstruct the environment because it's a longer scene, it's a longer take, and it's a secluded character again, and there's an indication that death is in the area, basically. And so in that, now that we've experienced Todd's death and the elaborate setup and the fake outs, you begin to deconstruct the environment and specifically look for clues in a really fun way. And there's no really, there isn't a feeling like it where you're like, oh, I know exactly how this person is gonna die. And then it comes out of left field. It's remarkable, not just because it's shocking, but in the creativity behind that shocking. Whereas the bus kill, is shocking because it's in your face, it comes out of nowhere. It's not necessarily super creative. It's more about the setup to that and the placing of that kill rather than the kill itself. Whereas with Miss Luton's death, there are tons of clues that you can pick apart where she goes to, she has to relight the pilot stove and you assume, oh, this is gonna explode. 
Then she goes and she pours a glass of vodka and the glasses she's drinking out of cracks and it leaves a trail of vodka uh, throughout the house, which I guess apparently is like super flammable as if it's gasoline, but that's neither here nor there. And then there's little clues such as in the background, there's a stained glass window that seems pretty out of place for the architecture of her house that has a big knife on it or a sword. And it's like, well, that's kind of weird. And then the vodka starts to drip in the back of the computer and the computer starts to smoke and you're like, oh, that's weird. And then the computer out of nowhere explodes and a piece of glass gets in her jugular and then she rips that out now and she's bleeding everywhere and she starts slipping and then the vodka explodes and catches on fire. And it just keeps escalating, escalating, escalating and the kind of ingenuity of the dominoes falling results in a chaotically bloody but super creative kill that I think really lends to the identity of Final Destination in that they'll take characters that think they're perfectly safe and then do these unimaginable things to them in a way that it's not very, it's not gratuitous. I think what I like so much about Final Destination is that it remedies my issue with a lot of the like Saw sequels in that the Saw films, they kind of lack a creativity in a lot of ways. It's more focused on the brutality and the lingering gore gruesomeness of those kills rather than what goes into those kills. Whereas in Final Destination, sure, there's blood and people get decapitated at certain points. It's not so much about the actual, like, the camera holding on the gore or the result of that. It's more focusing about the cleverness of the kills and the different uh, domino pieces, essentially, that are all being lined up to form the perfect kill in a way that is super entertaining and holds up uh, on a rewatch. I think I watched it for the first time two months ago and I still had a ton of fun watching it. Now the first two thirds of the film are so strong that it's really difficult and it kind of reveals how underwhelming I think the final act of the film is in that most of the magic of the earlier kills is lost in that at the end of the, by the end of the film, Alex is on the run from the FBI and he's trying to essentially skip the order that people are being killed in basically. So he finds out that death's design is this idea that death has a plan and it's like, he's got to kill this person, this person, and this person. But if death skips one of the people, one of the characters, then that person is safe until the person that was next gets killed essentially. And so it's all about trying to circumvent death's plan. And this ends in a big chase scene throughout the woods where the FBI is chasing Alex and Alex is trying to uh, rescue clear. And this scene, I'm not, crazy big fan of because it's very chaotic it's at night and it becomes kind of difficult almost to tell what's unfolding in a lot of ways and it just lacks the magic and the ingenuity of the kills earlier on and the ending is just chaotic in a way that doesn't feel necessary or indicative of what was so special about the first two-thirds of the movie while i might be down on the conclusion overall there's an epilogue scene that's about five minutes that i really love and it actually helps to save the semi-sour taste that the big conclusion left in my mouth, where Alex, Clear, and Carter have taken that trip that they were supposed to take to France in the beginning of the film, and now it's the three of them, and they think that they've beaten Death's design, essentially. And we see that Death really hasn't been outsmarted. Death always shows up. Death is not the end, as the characters say. Uh, he's still hunting them, and we see that Alex barely manages to survive the latest attempt of Death to kill him, and that means, guess who's up next is Carter, who's been basically begging to be killed the entire film with his kind of arrogance and over-the-top testosterone and whatnot, which makes that whole ending segment super satisfying. And it cuts away just before you see him get hit by this street sign that's swinging down that was originally supposed to kill Alex. And again, it's a very tongue-in-cheek moment that is a mixture of laughs and like shock. You're just like, oh shit, I'm realizing that he's about to get killed. And at the same time, it never feels very overly silly. Again, it doesn't feel like it's a scary movie uh, moment. 
in a lot of ways. It feels more tongue-in-cheek as if they're in on the joke. The audience is in on the joke. Like, finally, we're going to give this dickhead character that we've hated the entire 90 minutes his what for. He's finally going to get his uh, in a really satisfying way that largely allows me to overlook the, the last third of the movie that is not nearly as enjoyable as the beginning half. But uh, I think it's as good a time as any to rank the kills as it's a big part of uh, enjoying these movies. So for me, I'm going to rank the plane kill as number one because the plane kill, again, I think is incredibly indicative of not only practical work, but capturing the chaos of a scene in a way that's not chaotic in itself. It's not over-reliant on shaky clam. You never lose track of what's happening at any given moment. It very much is an organized presentation of chaos. And it's something that I think really defied my expectations of an over-reliance of uh, early 2000 CGI. Uh, number two is going to be the knife kill in the kitchen. That is by far the most well-orchestrated in terms of the domino effect that I had mentioned earlier in that you get to see all of these little fake outs and all of these little moments that are really, really well done and lead up to a huge payoff of an unbelievably creative kill that you really couldn't see coming. Uh, number three is going to be the bus kill, just again, because I think that shock value in terms of like, I wouldn't say it's a jump scare, but it does jump out at the audience in terms of the pacing where we had this elaborate kill earlier and then we've had some more narrative and exposition and now we have this jump fright essentially because the bus comes out of nowhere and the Carter's girlfriend that gets hit basically explodes all over her friends. That I think is a really well paced kill and it helps to alleviate a little bit of the moments that go from some big orchestrated kills and having this little like kill that'll hold you over until the next big elaborate set piece, I think is a really smart decision and helps helps the pacing of the film. I mean, for a 90 minute film, there's maybe 20 minutes of the 15, 20 minutes of the film where I'm just like, okay, it's time to wrap this up. And that again was in that third act. Uh, I'm going to say number four is going to be the hanging, Todd getting hung basically in the shower. Very elaborate in a way that is very creative and was unexpected. Uh, I just prefer the knife kill a little more to that. Uh, I'm going to say number five is the Euro sign at the end when Carter gets hit by the swinging sign just because of how tongue in cheek it is. And we finally get that moment where it's like we've rooted against the sky the whole movie. And we're like, really? This asshole is going to live when all of these other characters died? Not the case. So that's going to be number five for me. And then the last kill is going to be the train kill for me, which was how Stifler, good old Stifler died. Didn't necessarily have a problem with it. It was just, it didn't really lack a lot of creativity in terms of comparing it to the other ones. I think it does have a great example of practical effects in that making that dummy head when he gets decapitated was great, great practical effects. But overall, it kind of just felt a little tame compared to the other kills that were so creative. It would be remiss of me to uh, not mention Tony Todd, the goat, making a cameo as the uh, mortician, plays the mortician Bloodworth. And Tony Todd obviously is famously known for Candyman. And that's another film that I only just revisited again recently, last year, and fell in love with it in a way that I didn't originally. It really is a film that I think withstands the test of time in a way that not a lot of horror films do in terms of their commentary and how smartly crafted it is, because it's easily described as a slasher, but it's not really a slasher in a lot of ways, and it defies a lot of the slasher tropes and things like that that makes for a lot of smarter horror film than I was able to appreciate initially. But in this, Tony Todd has such a small part, and yet he's so memorable. And again, it speaks to his ability as an actor to give these very low-key but very almost Shakespearean performances. And he's always very sinister, and yet he's so cool and calm in his demeanor. 
And it's, again, he was in the movie for less than five minutes and he left such a big impact on me. And it's a character that I really hope shows up in the future uh, Final Destination films. They hint a little bit that he is the Grim Reaper because he's talking about, he automatically knows who Alex is on site, like right from the moment, which sure the plane crash was on the news, but I just how intimately he is familiar with Alex and the situation. And then this idea that he lays out the groundworks of death and how you can't escape death. Uh, and then he ends his interaction with Alex and Clear with, uh, I'll see you soon. Like, you're going to end up dying, which is super sinister. But again, it's not over the top as if he's like grandstanding. He's just very clear and precise and everything. And there's a really a Shakespearean elegance to everything he says that is super understated. And while horror obviously loves him, I feel like his performance in general needs to have a wider recognition because he's phenomenal in everything. And I really do hope his character shows up in the later films. And in ending my review of the original Final Destination, which I, is fantastic. Like this, this movie I've grown to appreciate since rewatching it just a few months ago in just how creative it is and how it is very much a film that's birthed in response to an over-reliance on horror tropes of the last two decades of slashers in that it feels like a response to that and the creativity in making it refreshing while not being something that's not as palatable for fans of previous decades of slasher films is really quite an achievement and uh going into final destination 2 i'm interested to see if they expand on clear's psychic visions because i know that devon sawa is not in the sequel he's not in any of them but i know that clear is and ali carter returns for the second one and in the first film there are some indications that she has some sort of abilities. So I'm really interested, in addition to seeing more creative kills such as this, I'm really interested to see how that goes narratively because the narrative is not the strength of the film. And I think that if they're able to improve upon that, the sequel might even be better than the first one. Or it just has me excited to explore these other sequels in a way that I'm not necessarily super excited about when talking about uh, slasher sequels. But that's going to do it for another episode of Daily Horror Habit, and I'll see you guys tomorrow for another horror movie review. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service, and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.